Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Welcome in on a, a Wednesday morning. All right, got a couple things to run by you here early in the morning. Uh, Dave Rose, former BYU basketball head coach. Coming up next, and then Matt Chaz now as it from uh, Washington State, the Cougars play-by-play voice as our spring football tour continues. I find Washington State really interesting for a couple reasons. One... Well, they play two different teams in the state, so there's that. Utah State in the opener in Logan, September 3rd, and then October 10th, they host the Utes. From the Aggie perspective, anytime you get a Power 5 team to come into Logan, it's a big deal. You don't get that every year. Once in a while, you do get it, and when you do, can you take advantage of it? And the answer to that is definitely maybe. It's a weird year, right? But both teams are going to be breaking in new quarterbacks, so there's an X factor. Washington State's got a new coaching staff. Everybody's had their spring football limited. Uh, you know, what is, what is camp going to look like? Uh, no idea. So, there's a lot of questions to be answered, but just the fact there are questions and it doesn't seem like a long shot to get a win, that's got to encourage Aggie fans. Uh, Also, the other thing to talk about with Matt is they rebuild this team and what is it going to look like by October 10th. Washington State, a road game for the Utes, is is exactly the kind of swing game that is the difference between five wins and seven wins, or seven wins and nine wins. This is the kind of game, no matter how good your team is, that is dangerous. But if you win this kind of game, you know, a new coach with a new quarterback, a defense that was a disaster last year. Now, you remember the 67-63 loss to UCLA? That was not an outlier. They played multiple shootouts. They won a shootout against Oregon State, a one-point game. I think that was 54-53 or 53-52. I think it's 54-53. 107 points in that game. They had a couple other games that were in the 30s. Their defense wasn't good enough. Will it be better by midseason? Can they beat the Utes? That's the kind of swing game. You go out and get a road win in the Pac-12, you feel good about yourself. And, you know, the Utes have questions of their own. So really, in that regard, the Utah and Utah State games with Washington State are pretty similar. A lot of question marks, new quarterbacks everywhere you look, a new coach at Wazoo. So we'll talk with Matt coming up. But Dave Rose is next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ PK and Dave Rose joining us. Former BYU basketball head coach is on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Please visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Dave, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing, guys? We're doing well. I've got a bunch of topics to talk to you about, but one I want to get started with, you know, I've, I've not only watched The Last Dance, but then I've watched people talk about The Last Dance the last couple of days, and I always talk about how, you know, someone who's 25 years old would have been three when 
Jordan hit the shot, right, to beat the Jazz in 98 and win the sixth title. So they watched The Last Dance and really learned a lot about Jordan. And I wondered if people like you, who made a living in the game, but, you know, you had to recruit and run a program and hire assistants and deal with whatever craziness happened in the offseason. And, like, how much did you miss of the NBA in that era? Because, you know, you were working you had your own team. And if you watched The Last Dance, how much did it fill in for you? And, and how much did you get kind of, you know, by osmosis? And you already knew. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, great, the great thing about it was that you watched it all, okay, and you, you remember it. You remember the, you know, the 63 that he got at the Garden. You know, I mean, all, all the, the highlights of his career that they showed in that Last Dance, you remember watching it, but it was all the – all the backstories to it that uh, were so interesting to me. I mean, because obviously I wasn't three when uh, right. that was going on. I was, you know, in my mid, what mid forties probably maybe. And uh, so I, uh, but but I, you know, I, I, I obviously as a as a spectator just idolized Michael and what he could do and how he did it. And then living here in Utah and watching him do it to our jazz at the best point. In, in in the franchise's history, you know, with Carl and and John, and and uh, it was just uh, it's just amazing. The probably my favorite part of the uh, uh, you know of the whole documentary was season seven, the last ten minutes or so of that, when other players were trying to show the respect that he deserves because he is the greatest of all time and played with him, been around him, but then tried to tell the truth about what it was really like uh, to be around him and, and how he pushed people and uh, made this game about one thing, period, and that was winning championships and uh, what he had to do to make that happen. And that, I mean, then he, you know, they end it. With him getting kind of emotional because I, you know, he realizes that, uh, you know, he 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 probably lost a few friends and made a lot of enemies with his pursuit of trying to be uh, the, the greatest champion of all time. Now you played with a couple of great players in Olajuwon and Drexler, and you coached some very good players. Obviously, do you see anything that is common amongst those people? Well, I joke with those two guys all the time. Is you know, uh, Clyde and Hakeem, it's a good thing Michael went to play baseball or they wouldn't have a ring themselves uh, <laughs> because the dude may have won eight in a row, you know. <laughs> but uh, he, th- th- those, uh, the, the one thing, I, Clyde reminds me a, uh, a little bit of, uh, um, of of Michael, and it was funny to, to watch Michael kind of talk about Clyde in, in, in what I felt was maybe a little bit of a disrespectful way. Uh, that he For was sure. nowhere close to the level that he was. Um, and, you know, it's funny because my wife's watching it with me and she's just going, man, how can a guy say stuff like that? And to me, that was the beauty of the whole episode. He was really honest. He, he, he told from his heart what he felt about Gary Payton and, I mean, just some of the guys who uh, he played against and uh, – uh, it's, uh, but, 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 but Clyde was a guy who he, he kind of had just really, uh, kind of concerned himself with his game and then us winning games. Um, and, uh, that, that's probably a, a similar comparison to what I watched with, with Jordan. 
So Jordan just came across as so incredibly ruthless. Are other elite players, you know, 80% of that ruthless? Is that part of being it? Or is that really something to Jordan that makes him different and makes him stand out from other elite players? Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I just don't know if, if today's player would put up with a guy like that. And uh, it's just it's a different time. Uh, it's a different era. Kids are brought up differently as far as, um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the best player in California and the best player in New York, they, they, they know, they've known each other since they were, you know, 12, 13 years old. They've played against each other in tournaments all over the, the country. They're, they're a lot more uh, friendly to each other. They know each other better. I think that, you know, you take – LeBron's run through the NBA is so much different than Michael's run through the NBA, and uh, and and obviously he's been really successful and won himself championships at different franchises. But I mean, for what Michael did at that time with that franchise, I mean, it was a franchise that was awful. They they were they they were just the you know uh, uh, a group of guys fielding a team to compete against in the NBA. And uh, he took that group and and made it one of the you know the, the best dynasties in the history of sport of any kind worldwide. Talk about how players are different today. We've spoken about this uh, now in retrospect uh, since you're out, but still have the knowledge of the game, and that's as far as players transferring. You look at a program like up at Utah. has got another kid who's going to transfer here who was in the rotation, most likely would have been in the rotation. They're trying to build something, and they take a couple of steps back and one step forward type of thing with these transfers. Anything can be done to slow this? Well, it's so, it's so hard, and you know, tomorrow is a huge day in the whole transfer because uh, there's a vote. They're going to vote to see if uh, every player in the NCAA gets one free transfer. It's like a mulligan in golf. I mean, you get uh, the, the first one, you get a chance to transfer without having to sit out a year. And you know, everyone thinks, well, the majority of people think it's not going to pass, but it's going to a vote. And when it goes to a vote, you never know what's going to happen on Wednesday morning. You know, there could be uh, thousands of uh, kids that want to, you know, try somewhere else because they don't have to sit out and uh, for a year. So, th- so we'll see that that that'll be a, a big deal because a lot of kids obviously, um, you know, don't want to spend a year, uh, you know, without playing competitively with the, with the season, and so uh, that won't slow it down. That's for sure. Slowing it down will be the vote against that a little bit, but. Uh, I don't think that um, it, it's so hard because, you know, everybody everybody is so focused on themselves first, the team second. And, and that's all I really tried to do in the whole 36 years that I was coaching was trying to make guys put the team first and then themselves second. And then the success of the team would would bring them all of what they wanted, their personal goals, because that's how it worked in my life. I mean, I was a good high school player and got a chance to play junior college and then Ended up at one of the, the one of the best teams in the history of uh, collegiate basketball. We went on 26 games in a row. We were number one, ranked number one for eight or nine weeks in a row, and played for the national championship. And that success of that team helped me in my career since the day we lost the game to North Carolina State in Albuquerque. And so that's what I tried to communicate to players all the way through. And it got tougher and tougher because. 
Uh, if you hear when 865 kids transfer every year, the first thing they say is, hey, I've got to do what's best for me and my family and what I feel. And in reality, I, I've always felt like the most important thing is what's best for your team. And if you, and if you play it that way, that, that, will, uh, that success of your team will guide you, uh, you know, in the future like it did for me. So I'm curious what happened with transfers at BYU because there was an era when multiple teams, but certainly football and men's basketball, didn't get many, if any, uh, transfers or grad transfers in. And now it seems like things have really loosened up. We've seen it both in football and men's basketball, and it seems to be working. What changed? Who changed it? How did it happen? Well, I, th- I think the, 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 the best guy to ask that question to is probably Tom because uh, – you know, Tom went through a period where he kind of discouraged his coaches from actually going out there because there wasn't really a place to put them. I mean, you just take this, for example, at one time that the the last application to a, uh, a graduate department uh, deadline, as far as the date was concerned, was like February 25th. So if you didn't have your application into the graduate school by February 25th, you couldn't get a kid enrolled into the program. Well, February 25th, the basketball season is not even over yet, and the grad transfers haven't even put their names out there as far as being able to uh, be eligible to be recruited. And so, uh, obviously, that rule has softened a little bit because now – um, you know, the, the, not only the football team, but the basketball team is involved with grad transfers. I had one in my career, and it was, it was uh, the son of one of my former teammates who I was best friends with. And, uh, you know, if we ever tried to document how that happened and, and how many times he was told that uh, it wasn't going to happen and how many times I told his dad, hey, just hang in there, we're going to try and get this done. Uh, if I was recruiting the kid, uh, and he would have left a long time ago, but since his dad really wanted him to play for me, uh, it worked for us, and LJ was uh, a really good player for us until he got hurt. But I think that the philosophy of the athletic department, they just realized that that is a huge part of today's recruiting. I mean, that transfer portal is absolutely essential to the ability to be able to put your team together late after things have happened. If you've got guys that are transferring and leaving you because of whatever reason, you got to be able to replace that somehow and be able to go and grab a guy here or grab a guy there. And, uh, I think uh, the athletic department has done a great job with the administration of the university to be able to find a way to start getting these guys in there. I'm wondering if Finally. you see any any danger in this path to go down because it's sort of like with the freshman and the one and duns if you start going heavy on that then you're basically committing to go into that almost to the point of every year like the same thing if you recruit these one and duns like sean miller has been doing and so they're not getting the team success because these guys are coming in there they're not necessarily ready and mature and then they take off the other side they are maybe ready and mature but if you're going to invest a lot of time in them they're only going to be there for one year so you see any problems going down that road too much well, it's it's so it's so hard because it's such a delicate balance. Uh, I don't think that in BYU's situation, I don't think there's any way that you can make that your your top priority as far as that's what you're going to build your program around is signing one year guys. You know, uh, the fact that you've always got to have uh, 
you know, freshmen, the, the, the best, especially the, you know, the best LDS freshmen around the country, you got to find them and, and bring them in and then kind of massage them and mold them until they're ready to help you play. And hopefully they're still around by then. But, uh, I, I do know that there's buddies of mine, you know, in the business that are getting two, three, four a year, and that puts a ton of pressure on them to do the same thing the next year, you know, after they're gone. And it kind of reminds me of the 10 years that I was in junior college. When I was in junior college at Dixie, you know, and we were, you know, trying to get, uh, you know, players every single year to replace either a sophomore that was leaving or a freshman that uh, had qualified and he was leaving. And so uh, way more similar to the recruiting approach and also the, the approach of your team. And we used to put these teams together in junior college for eight months. I mean, that's what you did. You just realized that, hey, let's get the best players we can possibly find, put that team together and then let that team go and then put another team together. And uh, it worked for us in junior college, but I think it, in a four-year school, you, I mean, you just really have to have the core of those good freshmen and then mix in the junior college every once in a while and now these graduate transfers. And, and the actual, you know, we made a pretty good living at BYU off of the, uh, the transfers that sat a year for us. Uh, you know, Eli uh, Bryant sat a year and uh, Chase Fisher sat a year, was a pretty good player for us. And, um, you know, uh, it, it, we, we had some, uh, you know, some pretty good guys, Kyle Davis uh, over the years, Matt Carlino. So we, we, I mean, we made a pretty good living off of having a kid bring them in, sit a year and work out with our guys and get used to it and then be ready to play, um, you know, from that experience. Dave Rose, former BYU basketball head coach, joining us. The uh, NBA has expanded rosters from 12 to 15. Now they've added 16th and 17th spots with these two-way contracts where guys can make 175 grand. Now there's this G League project. Has the NBA set the bar financially at a place where elite players, and there's no nice way to say this, where elite players are going to make more money in the NBA or the G League than they can make in whatever the under-the-table economy is in college basketball? Because the FBI transcripts have, you know, laid bare some of the stuff and some of the numbers and all that. But I see these multimillion-dollar programs and multimillion-dollar coaching jobs, and I wonder how much it's worth to people to keep their jobs to make sure that whether it comes from a school, a booster, a shoe company, or whoever, that some money gets funneled these guys' way. And it almost... You know, there's money in all things, and it seems like a uh, a race just continues to heat up for cash over these top young players. You know, I, I think that uh, you know, obviously, these kids, um, every one of them, and we're talking about maybe ten or fifteen kids a year, the really high elite guys that everybody's after, to, that people know that are you know only going to play college for a year. Uh, you know, we've had these few kids that have taken the money overseas and gone and, 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 and played, you mm-hmm. know, in Australia or in Europe. And uh, I, I think the, the NBA is tired of chasing those guys all over the country to see how good they really are and where they fit in the next draft. And so what they want to do is keep them close. And so what they've done is kind of anted up. And now they've got uh, some of these kids playing here for half a million dollars or so, but they're going to be, you know, right here uh, in the States, and everybody will have a chance to see him a lot easier. Um, I think that will influence not not a majority of kids, but 
uh, the majority of that elite group of kids, it'll start to influence those guys because uh, it's hard. It's hard to make that money up. I mean, you, you miss a year or two of that of that half a million or that million, and then you know you you, you really won't make that money up until your second contract if you really make it. You know, to, to there and so. Um, and and that kind of money, I mean, obviously fifty thousand, a hundred thousand is a lot of money to, you know, a kid coming out of high school. But a half a million is, uh, you know, a number that uh, these kids will uh, put a lot of pressure on them to go grab early uh, to help them, their families, and anybody else who uh, has helped them along the way. We've seen, obviously, finances are a big concern now with this, the world that we're living in and sports are being dropped and all, and there's been all sorts of different ways to recruit. Do you see these things being beneficial to the game and maybe easing some of the pressure of uh, being out on the road for months at a time or weeks at a time? You know, that's a good question. I I, I feel for, you know, a young assistant coach in the business right now because it's really – it's really up in the air on how it's going to go. I mean, uh, I, I think the established head coaches, you do, just kind of, you got to be patient and just see uh, the direction that it's going to go. And then you adjust and adapt to it. But uh, I would have never thought, I mean, I, I can tell you this guys that, you know, I coached for 36 years at the high school level, the junior college level, the, uh, the division one level. And, uh, as a head coach and an assistant coach at all three levels. And I never went to work one day wondering if we were going to play games. I mean, I always knew that was happening. Here comes the schedule. And the first of November, the middle of November, you know, we were going to start and uh, this is what's going to happen. I mean, these, these kids now they're, they're, they're and you know, and the coaches, they're in a, a really unique situation where, they don't really know for sure if, uh, you know, when their games are going to start and if their games are going to start and how their games are going to start. And that would be a really interesting off season to be a coach is trying to get your guys motivated. I know that the NCAA passed the rule that you don't have to be in school this summer to actually work out at the university, but you got to get these universities open to where the athletes can actually come to the back to the school they don't have to be in class and they don't have to be enrolled like normally, but they have to be able to use the facilities that have been opened by the officials. And that's, um, I mean, it, uh, that's a challenge. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. How are they going to evaluate a whole class of high school stars without a normal summer AAU schedule? Man, I have a, a friend of mine who's got a son that's going to be a senior next year. And what, I mean, you start you know, pinpointing groups of people that how disappointed you are for it, and it never stops. You know, high school seniors that didn't get their graduation or didn't get their prom, or it's just uh, who would have ever imagined that this would be where we're at, and not not just in sports, but in any part of uh, you know life. I mean, just uh, just going to the, the grocery store and. Uh, you know, I'm 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 trying to figure out. It just intrigues me that as these as the states start to open up again, that who wears a mask and who doesn't wear a mask, and how political it's become. And you know, for me, a 62 year old guy that's got 
you know, blood sugar issues. <laughs> it's got heart issues and it's got, you know, has battled cancer for 11 years. You know, the mask means something completely different to me than it means to, you know, an 18-year-old kid coming out of high school. But uh, I, I do believe that what we've been through and how this has all happened, that the respect for those who have lost their lives, the respect for those who are battling this thing with the healthcare workers, that uh, it, it, it makes me really think about what I can do to try to help with this thing, but it's affected this whole world in a way that I'd have never imagined. You think now that he's 50, Tim Lacombe is finally going to grow up? <laughs> no, no, that'll never happen. We, you know, we had his, uh, uh, a, a kind of a, a dumbed down COVID-19 birthday party the other night. And, uh, but we're still waiting for the big night and that's when he brings his high school band out yeah. here and we have the big concert at Valor and that's, that's been postponed, but uh, that that will happen, and I think that's the night that uh, we'll actually be able to, uh, you know, see the change. He'll 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 be a rock star for a night, and then he'll <laughs> after the next morning he'll wake up and realize, hey, it's it's time to get to work. <laughs> nice. And for people who don't know, there's a whole uh, John Bon Jovi side to his uh, personality that people have no idea. And he is really talented. I'm telling you. I mean, it, it's. Uh, I went and listened to his band back in Dallas one night when they played at a high school reunion, and uh, I mean, he he was up there for two and a half hours, probably sang sixty different songs, knew the lyrics to every one of them, and uh, had had a costume changed two different times. I mean, he was he was John Bon Jovi for a night that night. <laughs> Costume change? What does he share? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, he had, he had jackets. I mean, it's in Dallas, Texas. It's ninety-five degrees and eighty-eight percent humidity, and he's wearing sweatshirts and jackets and uh, t-shirts, and and he sweat through one. He had to take the other one off. It was good. It was good stuff. Dave, as always, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for coming on. All right, guys. Good luck to you. Are you guys together or are you split up? Split up. Are you still split, huh? Yep. PK's broadcast. You got a a date when you're coming back together in the studio? (laughs) No, not yet. It's kind of open-ended right now. That's the one thing I've tried to get used to is trying to communicate on Zoom. Mm -hmm. I don't really know when to talk and when not to talk. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I've found that the best thing to do is just listen most of the time. There you go. There you go. Hey, Dave, thanks for a few minutes. We appreciate it. All right, see you guys. There's former BYU basketball coach Dave Rose. When we come back, Matt Chasnow, Washington State Cougars play-by-play voice. So the Cougars open the year at Utah State, game number one, and then their sixth game is at home against the Utes. So a couple of fan bases, very invested in Washington State. BYU, you got the year off. But it still impacts you because BYU plays Washington State in the 2021 season. So 15 months away from that game. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. 
DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. We're joined now by Matt Chazanow, Washington State Cougars play-by-play voice. Matt, good morning. Morning, guys. How you doing? Good. So, you trade one pass-happy coach for another pass-happy coach in Pullman. How much is that going to impact everything? Well, I think it's PBD. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I haven't seen him a single practice yet. Yeah. It's been so weird. You know, I, I think uh, I think it'll go really well. If I'm being honest, uh, I, I know that I'm sure most play-by-play guys are are in the role where you would probably hear them say that about their their new coach. But it's it's really been there's a reason why the hiring process was so smooth, and and Rolovich, Coach Rolovich, was here 72 hours doing a presser after Coach Leach was in Starkville, and and that's not always the case. So. You know, I think there's a reason why Coach Leach recommended him and why Pat Chum thought he'd be a great fit, and it all just fell right into place. You know, he's, he seems like a, a a really great fit for what is here personnel-wise and culture and all, and all those things that go along with it. So a couple quarterbacks are gone. Who's throwing for 5,000 yards this next season? Well, that's, that's really the key question. I mean, if you had to pin me down right now, I think the leader is Cam Cooper. You know, he's been here. He's a, a now a redshirt sophomore, so he's been here a few years. You guys know Cam Cooper from mm-hmm. from his Utah high school days, yeah. I suspect. Yep. And uh, he, yep. he's, he, you know, he's had a, a very good last year. If you, if you told me his first year, his redshirt year, uh, that he was going to have to play, I, I'd say that there's just no way. He wasn't ready, and, and he wasn't practicing at the level that would allow him to compete at the pack. And, but he's got all—he's big, and his arm's really strong enough, and, and all those things. He just had, kind of had to figure out how to how to do it. He had a, a really good spring game last year. I should say uh, he had a really good fall camp uh, last year, and. Had, had a moment, few moments where he had a bunch of, of quality throws for the first time, you know, pack level throws that I saw. And then, uh, you know, now the system's a little bit different, but he's the guy who's been here. And Gunnar Cruz is a, a kid from Arizona who's who's a different kind of player than Cooper. You know, he'll he'll compete for it. Cruz is is huge. I mean, you, you know, think more in the mold of. Uh, Ryan Leaf, you know, he's a, he's a different kind of quarterback. He, uh, he's not at Leaf's level right now, but he's that big. I mean, he's six four. He's came in out of high school like six four, well over two hundred, but mobile and really athletic. Uh, and then um, there was a big, there's a big recruit coming in named Jaden Delora from Hawaii, who ran this system back at, at St. Louis High School, which is a powerhouse high school in Hawaii. And and the coaches all know him because Craig Stutzman, who's who's the QB guy, is, is, went to that high school also and is Hawaiian. So Coach Rolovich played at Hawaii. There, there's a connection there. And, um, and I think that's a possibility if he comes in and just blows everybody away. Although it's always, it's always unlikely for a true freshman to, to start right out of high school. So, yeah, you throw for 5,000 yards, but there'll be like seven receivers with 500 yards. 
So is that do, do you have a good feel for whether Rolovich wants to change that or whether it's a lot of four receiver sets and you need two sets of guys basically running sprints every 30 seconds so you need to be six seven eight receivers deep and none of these guys should worry about playing time or catches because the ball's going to get spread around you know I, I don't know as much I, I've yet to see this version of the run and shoot in the way Rolovich wants to do it with this personnel and and have those specific discussions in terms of, all right, here's your depth chart, but how deep does it actually go? Is it like the air raid where you're really playing eight wide receivers? You know, I I can say I've talked to him about how it it is going to be, you know, it's actually fewer pre-snap sets and it's a bunch of post-snap receiver route options. And it's a different way to run it. When it's on, the, the ceiling's actually higher. I think Mike Leach would say when it's on, there are opportunities for more deep balls, more explosive plays than the air raid. There's also there's also a lot more running with Max Borgie uh, by design, pre-snapped in the air raid, and, and they'll go with what's working. It's not... It's not necessarily as pass first, although it is a pass offense. But you know, I, I don't know the answer to that yet, and I don't. I don't know that anybody does. I think he kind of needs to wait and see who fits and and what the personnel is and who's outside and who's inside. I don't think they'll switch that up too much. There are a couple guys, Cassidy Woods maybe could be an outside guy. He might play a lot. He was going to be inside. He's a little bit bigger, but. That that's very TBD. You know, I I need to see it in camp and see it in practice, and I I'm not totally comfortable saying like, well, it's going to be the same thing with eight guys catching that many balls. You know, I'm, I'm not sure how the wealth gets spread around like that. Well, you did lose a thousand yard receiver last year, and obviously Gordon's gone as a five thousand yard plus passer. You mentioned Borgie coming back at off at running back. And then I look at the offensive line. There's a whole lot of expected, anyway, talent uh, returners to be coming back. So could I say maybe that uh, the run and shoot is a little more run at the start maybe this year? I think so, yeah. I mean, maybe the best player on the team is your running back. And and Coach Rovis said in his initial press conference, in the opening presser, that right away he wants to run the ball more. Um, It's not the air raid and – and he wants to be sure that fans know and their expectations are set that there are games where they could hand the ball off 25 times to Max Borgie. I mean, that, that's not unheard of for him. It's the run and shoot. You know, it's a little bit different. And, and I know that, that that can take a couple different meanings. But I think for him, he's comfortable with that. Uh, they, they, lost, they lost three really good wide receivers. They lost Des Patman. They lost Aesop Winston. And they lost Brandon Arcanado. They return quite a bit. Tay Martin, Travell Harris, Leonard Bell. Um, I mentioned Cassidy Woods before. There's a kid named Brandon Gray who's a long outside receiver who, who you haven't seen a ton yet. He hasn't had a chance to, to really play. Uh, maybe the most talented of them, Rod Fisher, is not currently on the roster. We'll, we'll, we'll see if he's kind of able to, to figure things out before we get back to school and um, so th- there are guys who are there and could be there who are really good. And I, I think the-, the-, the peak of those guys being Tay Martin and-, and Travell Harris in terms of production and returning production. But, but yes, you know, you're bringing back uh, if the second best or maybe the best player 
is Max Borgie than the other guy competing for that. Your right tackle and Abe Lucas, who looks like a pro. He looks like he's in the mold of Andre Dillard, who was a first round pick. So. Yeah, it, it could definitely be a, a, a very run-oriented version of a pass-happy offense. So it looks like Wazoo gave up at least 30 points in seven of nine conference games, plus the bowl game. There's a 37-35 loss to Oregon, 38-34 to ASU, memorably 67-63 to UCLA, and won a 54-53 shootout with Oregon State. That's wildly entertaining, but that's just way too many points. Where is the strength of the defense to build off of to, if not lockdown teams, at least start, stop the uh, arena football-type scores? Yeah, the, the whole UCLA-type thing and, and even the Oregon State game, I mean, it, it is, you know, it's more fun than 3 nothing, but it's not great football. You know, you, you don't, you don't want to be playing games in north of 50s into the 60s regularly and, and giving up that many points and and it's it's fun in its own way but it's also not it's not ideal you know you want to be able to get teams off I mean that was Utah was really good last year and at, at a nationally relevant level with, with all those guys on defense that got drafted and Zach Moss and the whole thing and Huntley and the, and the thing that really stopped Washington State was in Utah for instance was for one, the the offense got slowed down by the Utes, and, and a credit to them. And and the Kooks couldn't get Utah off the field. I mean, they, they were constantly converting third and long. And if you had to look back at last year's team, the, last year will be the year that the, the offense was fantastic, but the defensive coordinator quit midseason, and they they never really got back on track. You know, not. And you could look at causation and correlation and cause and effect and everything, but the last year's the defense had a really hard time figuring it out. They lost a player before the year ever started who wound up starting for the Arizona Cardinals, a safety named Jalen Thompson, all pack level. Might have been the best safety in the pack last year, and, and he got drafted in the supplemental draft and wound up actually starting as a rookie a few games for the Cardinals. He was he was supposed to really anchor the defense and be the star and so now coming back, you actually have a lot of players who played, but I don't want to say it was for bad reasons, but it was it kind of became a bit of a grab bag. You had a new defensive coordinator, and you shifted some personnel back to where it was supposed to be before Tracy Clays had switched it around a little bit, and it really it really turned out to be a bit of a mess. So the thing last year they really couldn't do, and the reason why I think they never could get teams off on third down, third and long, is is they just didn't get a lot of pocket pressure. Quarterbacks had a lot of time. There was not a lot of pressure on the offense, the opposing offensive line. So Dallas Hobbs and Lamont McDougal, and they actually have a lot of talent coming back on the D-line too. You know, Will Rogers, the, those three guys, if they're your starting defensive lineman, you actually feel pretty good about it. But Lamont McDougal had barely played last year. Hobbs had had really not turned into what the Kooks think he could be, which is an all-pack D lineman. And, and Will Rogers, I think, had had some issues uh, in terms of health, and so he wasn't quite right. So it, it was getting really deep, you know. And, and I think 
at some point, you know, last year coming into the year, they had to re- replace 10 of their 11 defensive starters for some of the games from the previous year. And, and it's very hard to reload like that. You know, and you, you, if you've got a good defense, you will find out, you know, how, how Utah is about to reload here. They've lost so much over the last two years to the NFL, for instance. It's very hard to do that. Defense is their thing. The Cougar offense could do it, and, and you know, the defense didn't quite keep up there. And so they still bowled, you know, they, they, and they almost won. That could have been an eight-win team. It could have been a nine-win team. The offense was good enough. You mentioned the UCLA game. They definitely should have won that. They almost won in Eugene. They almost won in Tempe. You know, those were those are really hard games to win. I mean, you go to Oregon last year and, and win a game, you're 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 darn good. So they were there. They just they need to figure that out. And Jake Dickert's the new DC, and and there's tons of coaching turnover. So it's it's TBD on some scheme. I, I get the idea. I think it'll feel a little more like Alex Grinch. But, but in personnel and what they do with some of the nickelbacks packages and Travion Brown is a really talented linebacker. What do you do with Brown? And he was just a true freshman last year who was real productive at the all-pack level. So um, it, I don't want to say question marks. They, they kind of know who. It's just where and how because there's a new D.C. Yeah, obviously there's a new coaching staff there. And I went and looked. And I saw, you know, he brought a lot of guys from Hawaii with him, particularly on the offensive side. And I was wondering if you could explain, because as I was researching it, I see Brian Smith is listed as the offensive coordinator, and he was with uh, Rolovich the last four years over there in, in the islands. And then also you already mentioned uh, a Stutzman. Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, he's listed as the co-offensive coordinator slash quarterback coach. How is that going to work? All right, so let's go back in time, and I I think you'll get a sense of what's going on here. The offensive side of the ball is an evolution of one of Hawaii's best teams ever, where Rolovich was the quarterback, Stutzman was a wide receiver, and Smith was an offensive lineman. They all played together. So they're all they're all playing buddies from back in the Hawaii days, playing, figuring it all out with June Jones and – and now they, they've all, they all went off and became coaches, and they've, they've circled back at Hawaii and now, and now had phenomenal success there as coaches and, and gotten this job. So the offensive side of the ball here is the Hawaii staff from last year, not in totality but primarily. And then the defensive side is the Wyoming, is a, a bunch of Wyoming Cowboys coaches who, through success in the Mountain West, you had you had under Craig Bull and with some personal connections, you've got Jake Dickert as the DC and him bringing a crew that he thinks will work in the pack. So, whatever the titles are, what you really have offensively is Rolovich was the the Hawaii quarterback as a player. You've got Stutzman was a slot receiver and a, and a very good one and uh, a, a very impactful recruiter in on the islands. And then you've got Brian Smith, who as an offensive lineman has coached himself into, into calling plays and, and learning the totality of the offense. So he, he's not the old line coach, Mark Weber is, but they all kind of play their own role in forming it together. Now, I'll know more about how it all really fits together once we get to practice. And I'm, I, I know what the – I get the personal connections and – I don't know how much to read into titles and all that stuff, but if, if that kind of paints the picture for you of, of how far back this goes for these guys, 
Um, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine Rolovich isn't obviously integral to how these plays are going to be designed and called and what the communication will be like and who's up in the booth and all that stuff. I'll, 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 get, I'll confirm that once I see it because I don't want to say the, the wrong thing, hold, hold me to it, but that, that's the spirit of it. Washington State hosts Utah in the sixth game of the year, October 10th, but the season opener is at Utah State September 3rd. Can Rolovich possibly answer all the questions, or is Utah State got a great opportunity to beat a Pac-12 team at home? Well, you know, I, the Aggies lost their QB. You know, it's, it's hard for me to make too much of a prediction on a, on a road Thursday game when, when the Cougs and Maggie's literally haven't practiced. You know, I mean, I, I think, I think Washington State, in the magazines that are all about to come out, which by the way I'm itching for and can't wait to get to all that stuff in preseason. I, I just hope we all get a green light and, and can really talk more definitively about this. But my suspicion is, based on a six-win team last year and a loss to Air Force in the bowl, and the departure of Mike Leach and all the coaching turnover. It's going to be really hard for those who know the league, who make predictions, to to pick the Cougs toward the top of the North. It's just you're going to have a lot of predictions of Washington State winning just a few pack games and and maybe doing okay non-conference. So I think people are going to look at this game as sort of a litmus test. I don't know how fair that is, and it probably depends on how much practice they get before it and what this all really looks like. I'm not comfortable. I haven't done the Utah State real prep yet to know. Watch out, bad matchup, good matchup, one way or another. I think it's. A, I think it's inherent in the first game being a road game, and all this coaching turnover and waiting to see what that looks like and feels like. There, there's definitely larger unknowns than if it was Mike Leach coming back. I could tell you very specifically where every player is going to fit in and, and what the offense is going to do and, and all that stuff. I, I can't do that for you right now. So I, I feel unsure to, to give you a, a, a real solid definition you're looking for. But um, I, I do think that it's probably unfair to say, okay, pictures painted no matter what after the, the Utah State game. I mean, you know, in 2015, the Cougs lost to Portland State and then lost to Boise and then ripped off a, a, a really good season and beat Miami in the Sun Bowl and, and wound up winning nine games. So hard to say, you know, and early on. I'm, I, I learned that lesson, and uh, and I think I think it's probably not fair to say the Utah State game just is what it is for, for Coach Rolovich in his first game. Well, Matt, thanks for joining us this morning. We appreciate the insight on the Washington State Cougars, such as it is. A lot of transition and don't get the full spring football. But thanks for coming on and talking a little Cougars. Oh, I love talking ball. I've been itching, too. I love the text and the call from you guys. And anytime, I can't wait to get to it. And I appreciate you having me on. There's Matt Chazanel, Washington State Cougars play-by-play voice. When we come back, what is trending and all the headlines. Stay with us.